Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about everything. <laughs> it feels like everything, everything around media production uh, in our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to talk about DMX. So uh, we're going to talk about what, what are the DMX universes, channels, DMX over IP, all of those things are going to be things we're covering. So if you've got questions about DMX, which is very important to understand, then throw those in right now. You can throw them into McConnell right now and, and ask those questions. Um, and uh, we'll be working our way through those DMX questions and, and giving you a little overview of how DMX works uh, in the second hour. And again, if you have questions for the first hour, throw them in. Uh, we love getting up in the morning and having lots of questions at the beginning of the hour. We've got a lot of them this morning. Uh, so make sure to jump in and vote on the questions as well as ask those questions. Uh, let's go ahead and jump into those questions. Uh, Courtney, what do we have? All right. Coming in first, we have Andy Kokendorfer from uh, Vieira, Florida. And he asks, uh, he says, we want to display moderated social media com uh, comments and questions on stage at a hybrid event. What are the best practices for this setup? Go ahead, Jeffrey. Having a good team behind it. That's the bottom line. Uh, I remember one event, and this is pre-COVID, uh, where they had a team that's actually uh, filtering through the questions and comments. And then they send specific ones via a spreadsheet to uh, to the actual person who would then do some more moderation, maybe take out a word that didn't make sense or, or anything like that. If they had, if the person didn't have a uh, an image in their uh, in their social media, they'd put in a generic image instead of that instead of that person outline. They'd they'd make something that that kind of fit towards the event. And everything like that. So, if you get a good team doing that, you can have you can pretty much do anything, uh, in, including moderation and uh, posting some great contents and back and forth. Yeah, there's a couple. You know, there's a variety of different pieces of software. There's Social Wall, Grid, Carousel. Those are all things that you can use to grab some of those things um, and make them actually work. I have to admit that I don't really post that many things from social or we try to push people away from that, uh, mostly because it seems like it's a good idea that you would do that, but it, 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 you, you don't really attract the people that you think you're going to attract to these things. If someone has a significant following, which means that they've done this for a while, they tend will tend not to post anything for your event because it would junk up their own feed. And so social media, posting social media comments are not usually um, getting anybody vertical <laughs> at all uh, because uh, th th that's not the behavior. And so usually we find that the comments are okay, um, but you're better off oftentimes if you have some kind of common engine that you're using uh, in your in your show, you're better off figuring out ways to pipe pipe that in. Um, obviously, we use Makana for that. We have display options that can go full screen and so on and so forth, but, but there's a lot of other ones that can be used as well. But you're better off in a hybrid event grabbing things not so much from social media, but from whatever question engine that you might be using um, so that it's really applied to your your um, system. But, you know, there, there's a lot of more risks than you think about posting social media. I know that it's popular, but we have found, you know, you don't know what everything else that person with, with 50 subscribers has uh, posted on their on their Instagram or on their Twitter. Uh, oftentimes, you know, if you dig any deeper into them past the post for your show, you may find things that you didn't, you wished weren't, on, you know, on their, you know, connected to their platform. So the amount of work that you have to do to do that, to really make sure that those work, um, I would I would recommend against using social media posts and really look at whatever question system you're using to feed things of people who are actually at the event online and posting those through that system. Um, next question. Jens Olson from uh, 
Sandpoint, Idaho wants to know what outdoor speakers or amp would you recommend for a permanent installation for backyard band practice? And they note their backyard is 20 acres. That's a big backyard. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah. Um, so I'm assuming that you're talking about PA style speakers, not the little itty bitty speakers that you might uh, hang all over your house. Uh, so for that, uh, a lot of times uh, some people want to go towards a powered speaker uh, and then, of course, put it in an enclosure uh, to uh, protect the elements. I, what I like to do, if you have the ability to, is actually have that PA, that amp, sitting in a more enclosed area like a garage or a shed and with uh, proper air ventilation and then run cables to the speakers, which are passive speakers. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not a big fan of going too expensive for backyard stuff. So if you're looking at a uh, lower end, like a, like a pile or something like that for speakers, um, you should be good. Uh, but yeah, you can definitely put almost any type of uh, passive speaker up there as long as you know you're you're not uh, killing noise ordinances when you're uh, when you're practicing and have fun yeah i i uh i will say that i've done a lot of outdoor speaker installation actually and the, the hard part with passive speakers is that they you know getting the impedance correct uh for the amp uh, turns out to be a thing when you start running really long speaker cables um so you just have to you know that's why we tend to think about wanting to run power to them and then run you know, signal to them. I mean, it is easier. You're absolutely right. It's, it's much easier to run uh, passive because it's only one cable, but oftentimes that can be a little bit more problematic in, in those areas. So that's the only thing that I would I would consider. I don't know of, a, there's a lot of like all weather speakers, but when you're talking about a practice for band practice, I'm not sure what kind of band you're talking about. If you're talking about a rock and roll band, I think I would be thinking about more of how to, how to, um, have something that's easy to roll, you know, set down and connect as opposed to something that I'm just going to leave out in the, in the weather, you know, and I don't know what, what kind of weather you have there, but uh, I wouldn't leave most large speakers outside all the time. Uh, next question. Next one comes in from uh, Brooklyn, New York. Uh, and it's from uh, Mike Edwards. He says, morning, everyone. I'm looking for a biometric or key card security system. What does the panel recommend, as well as any other security measures to keep things secure? Go ahead, John. So as far as ease of use goes, Ubiquity has a card access system. Unfortunately, they just came out with a new version, but unfortunately it's sold out right now. But for $600, they have a whole little package to get started. I, I would start looking there first. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of key card um, systems that you can get into. One of the things you want to start thinking about also, and depends on the regulations within the within the building you're in or what what your issues might be there, is when you think about a, a door, when you think about opening the door, think about whether it's going to be fail safe or fail secure. So fail secure means it's going to close up and it's not going to open if you lose power. <laughs> so, so, so fail secure means that the, the lock stays in. Fail safe means it's going to pop open when you lose power. Power is a is a really key way that you end up having a, an open office. So so you want to think about what that what that actually looks like um, for for that. That's something that we think about a fair bit um, in that area. Uh, cameras are obviously relatively useful as far as knowing what actually is happening um, and where what you know it allows you to check those things. Now I have to admit. Uh, at the office, we've had we we've had some more secure things in in my house. I have Nest, <laughs> a bunch of them, and so I you know it's easy for me to get up to, and make that actually work. Um, but uh, there's a lot of I would, 
And I would probably lean more towards biometric than cards at this point. Um, I have, and I say that as someone who just loses their cards constantly. So I kind of wish that everybody was using biometric. There's a couple of them now that, that work on the phone. Um, there's one company I've worked at that uses it with a watch, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure how widely um, that, that works. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. One thing a lot of people don't consider is fire codes uh, because you have to allow egress in case of a fire. Uh, so you can't really lock up. That's the fail uh, secure, fail safe. Yeah, you have to have another secure, way out. Right. You have to, or, or you have to have a fire exit within the room. So make sure you check the fire codes in your area and you may have to have a separate you know, push to open from the inside that uh, bypasses the security in case of a fire. Fire alarms are going off. You may need to tie it into your fire detection system too. Next question. Next one comes in from our friend David Brady in New York City. He says, what are the leading platforms for VR or AR development and how uh, how steep is the barrier to entry for a non-developer? You know, I think that the, the one that's probably the, the, the least steep to build is probably Unity. Um, so we, we built most of our AR and VR um, tools over the last I don't know, almost, I, don't, I wouldn't say 10 years, but last eight years have been Unity. Um, and so um, I think that, the, you know, there's Unity and Unreal are, are your two platforms that most people are building some version of this with. Um, I do think that, you know, we're looking pretty seriously at, you know, Apple's tools um, for the Apple headset, but that's only going to work for the Apple headset. So it depends on whether when you look at AR and VR, are you looking at developing for the Apple headset or you're looking at developing for many headsets? And so if you're looking at all the headsets, then I think that Unity would probably be something I'd consider pretty heavily, as well as Unreal. Um, uh, but the Unity, so the one of the big things between Unity and Unreal is Unreal spent a lot of time be, making sure that it was available to 29.97, 59.94, and Unity did not. It's in whole frames. And the reason that that's important is that Unity, you know, it focused really on the devices and headsets and so on and so forth. Unreal made it more, made itself more available to um, you know, production. And so Unreal has, has benefited from that. Um, but but that's when, one of the reasons you see so much Unreal is because it's really spent a lot of time looking at physical production as something that it was going to work on as opposed to Unity, which stuck with games and devices. Um, and uh, because, you know, Apple has embraced it, if you're thinking about the Apple headset, you probably should be thinking pretty heavily about Unity and the uh, Reality Composer Pro, which is Apple's device. And we're hoping to get somebody on to talk about Reality Composer Pro, and we'll be doing labs on it because I'm only focusing on that. So, yeah, go ahead, Tlaloc. I think, I think also it's interesting to think about what your particular vertical is. If you're somebody who's built, who's worked in CAD a lot, and and you, you can build objects in, in, in CAD, in vector CAD, um, then you can then port those over to um, Unity and Unreal and and Cinema 4D and and start building their surfaces in better ways, and then you know you can have really detailed items. So I just think depending on where you're sort of started from, uh, then go from there. Yeah, and and there's definitely lots of tools that you can use to build the geometry that you need to put into it. Uh, the main thing is figuring out how you're going to interact with it, and that's the thing that's going to be the harder part. And I think that. Um, I think that my opinion, just looking at it from the outside, is that Unity is kind of a stopgap for Apple because they just can't do all the features that Unity has. It lets a lot of develop, current developers develop for the headset. Um, but Reality Composer Pro is probably something to pay a lot of attention to if you're looking at the kind of holistic you know, approach to that. If, if when you're asking about AR and VR, you're thinking about the, the Apple headset, 
I would see how far you can go in Apple Composer, or the Reality Composer Pro. Um, that's gonna that's designed to hook into someone who's writing Xcode, and I would just start learning Xcode, <laughs> like you know, so learning Swift. I wouldn't bother with you know older versions of of uh, coding for you know for uh, the Apple platform. I would just use Swift at this point. Apple's slowly you know kind of circling that and eliminating support for everything else, and so I, I think over the next three or four years, uh, Swift will be the only uh, software. I mean, only um, thing that you can write in for Apple. Yeah. Next question. Next one comes in from um, uh, Mr. I'm sorry, didn't move there. Uh, Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts. And Craig wants to know, is there a way to remap or reuse the ATEM button such as the audio that he's not using? Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, they don't expose uh, that stuff in the API. I mean, you could design your own piece of touch software that... Uh, as whatever buttons you want to, but I think the only buttons that are assignable on the ATM Extreme and not on the Mini are the uh, macro buttons. There's six of them over on the uh, right side, and I think those are the only ones that you can actually reassign different stuff to. Tolly, I think I have to sort of flip this flip this question on its head because because there isn't a good way to remap a lot of those buttons, and there are a lot of them. What you might want to do is remap how you control the ATEM onto a stream deck or otherwise. And then you can have those buttons do other things to other programs, other, other, other things, and then kind of combine all those buttons into one location um, uh, rather than relying on remapping the buttons on your ATEM. Yeah, it's a little frustrating because there's so many buttons that we don't use. I there are, I, I would say a solid three quarters of the buttons on my ATEM Extreme I've never actually pushed with any reason to use them, and so it would be great to your point. The problem really is the polling of the the polling of the of the ATEM. It's not giving out information, um, you know, uh, readily. So it's, so it's just not something that you can use to to get that data. I don't th I don't even think it can be hacked to do that. So it's a it's a little bit of a bummer uh, because it's it is a lot of buttons that we could use for a lot of other things <laughs> and, and we haven't been able to. It has been a request. Maybe we'll gang up. We did, by the way, you you might see in Discord. Uh, we did ask everybody to apply a little bit of pressure to Insta360 around the link. If you haven't seen that, please go to Discord. Look at the Alex announcements, um, and we put it out to everyone. But we are now the number one request in GitHub for upgrades for the Insta360, and we'd like to keep pushing that that up. So if you're willing to go to Discord, uh, look for that link and uh, put that request in. As a group, I think we can kind of move things forward if we uh, apply a little bit more pressure. Um, next question. Next one comes in from Douglas Carmichael, and he says, uh, Miele has introduced a smart food ID for their ovens, which uses uh, artificial intelligence to detect what you are cooking and recommend suggested settings based on it. Uh, could this and similar technology help people with disabilities or impairments be more independent? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, this kind of uh, AI uh, has been around in microwave ovens for many years now. They've, uh, you know, probably 20 25 years now, the, the sensor cooking, it's its kind of disappeared. They used to have the sharp microwaves, used to have sensors, and some ovens still do have uh, temperature sensors that you insert in any uh, food that you're cooking. Because obviously, to cook food correctly, you got to know what temperature it is on the inside. And that's one of the few ways to do that. 
Uh, so those kind of tools are available now and have been available for more than 20 years to cook things to perfection. Uh, temperature controlled cooking uh, can be done with sous vide because it's very slowly cooked and the temperature migrates slowly. So you don't have to worry about burning something on the outside and having it raw on the inside. But uh, there are tools and technologies, infrared temperature sensors. Uh, also, a lot of ovens these days have uh, pre-built, uh, you know, uh, templates for the type of food you're cooking. But uh, unless it's got some type of internal temperature probe that you can stick in the food, you, it's hard to tell because of the moisture content of the food. Uh, you know, cooking is, is a tricky thing uh, to handle automated, you know, with automated and unless it's got cameras in there to detect burning, I guess they could have sensors to detect uh, when something is carbonized uh, or your popcorn is, you know, turning into a smoke bomb. Uh, but uh, there are some sensors that help you and make things easier. And of course, there are templates on like every microwave for popcorn, heat up, heat up coffee, et cetera, et cetera, that make things a lot easier. Harshi. Amazon has uh, tried this in their space, and uh, you know, they, it just depends who's going to adopt the technology. Um, yes, it could be a helpful tool in the kitchen, but uh, the ease of use, the usability part, is always a challenge. So, let's just say if we have something like Apple or Google or any of these other companies, uh, you know, with as far as the smartphones go, are they really conversing with these companies to help manufacture these? products or is it just hey i can make my own ai and i'm going to say it's going to work best for you but then again no one asked the person that needs it right so sometimes uh people tend not to ask the disabled people how it works for them they just try to make it first and say here you go try this out and uh, that doesn't always work out the best so it's a good try it's it's worth it it's doable but uh, there's just that functionality of uh, you open a box, you push a button, you know, that workflow has to be uh, pretty usable. Yeah, the, um, uh, the I have a June, uh, June oven, and we use it every day, all day. <laughs> like it's just, it's just constantly running and it's got a camera in it. So you just put stuff into it and it goes, hey, this looks like asparagus. <laughs> Do you want me to cut, cook this? And it does a pretty good job. It, if anything, I think that it sides a little on the uh, not wanting to burn it. I think they they don't want you to leave feeling like we burned the 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 thing. And uh, so my only complaint is usually that it's a little uh, underpowered as far as it, it it doesn't quite make things as cooked as I like them at least. But it does do a solid job. And um, and so it it does use the tools that you're talking about. And you most of the time you just put the put whatever you want in there and just tell it. And then if you adjust it, if you make it go longer. You can say save that. So now every time you see asparagus, cook it for six more minutes <laughs> than what you thought it was supposed to be. Um, and uh, so you can adjust that. The thing that comes to bring it back to production, the way we talk about it here, what what's really useful about what June does and Heston does it as well, they make pans that have Bluetooth inside the pan. And so Heston has these little Bluetooth, the pan has got a Bluetooth connector and the the burner, it's an induction burner, has a Bluetooth connection, which means that your phone talks to both of them. The pan can tell the phone what temperature it's at, and the phone tells the burner what to do. And what that means, if you tell it, I want to be at 450 degrees, it just goes, whoop, and it goes right up to it, and then it stops, and then it just stops giving, and then every time it drops a little bit, and so it makes it a very accurate pan. Um, and the reason that that's useful is because um, that's one of the big variables that people screw up when they cook, is the heat. 
that, you know, how the heat is, everything, uh, most of the other stuff is easy. And then what they, what both June and Heston do is that they, um, they give you great video tutorials about how to do cooking. So they say, do this and cut the onions and cut the thing. And it has step-by-step and you can build very complex things that, that are remarkably easy. And the reason I, I, I bring it up here is because it is, I think it's a huge market that we haven't really tapped into yet, which is the wetware, you know, of teaching people how to use the, use the products, um, you know, effectively and getting them involved. And I think that we're going to see more and more of that um, because a lot of these tools make it a lot easier to do things that are more complex. So while you want things to be done for you, I think that there's a certain value to teaching people how to use the product and how to build things that they didn't think they could build by eliminating some of the issues um, and then, you know, the some of the variables and then giving them still tutorials and, again, video training to to make that work. Go ahead, Courtney. I haven't seen, seen any yet, but I'm wondering if uh, there are any microwave ovens or other ovens that are voice controlled yet uh, that you Amazon. can tell it. Amazon has one that, that does that. It's it, you can you can ask you know the A because for people with disabilities thing. that's a that's a pretty mm-hmm. good help helper to have something that can be voice controlled without yeah. having to look at small menus or mm-hmm. buttons or impossible to read gray on black uh, buttons that they put on. Yeah, absolutely. Harshid. Amazon does have that. They have a Braille overlay as well. But again, as we talked about the usability, the app itself should be accessible. So, you know, if I'm using the Amazon app, I should be able to voice my commands to say, make popcorn. And then it already knows it has a cup of popcorn in there. So it's the usability between the apps. Yeah, absolutely. And a quick reminder that uh, we still have uh, plenty of time in the first hour. If you've got questions uh, for us around media production, go ahead and throw those questions into Makana. Also, if you've got questions about DMX, uh, throw those in for the second hour. Let's go ahead to the next question. Next one comes in from uh, Nathan Cashin in Oregon City. I suppose that's in Oregon. He says, uh, Apple Vision Pro can display up to 22 8K video streams when connected to a Mac Pro. Will uh, we see producers or technical directors wearing these in broadcast control rooms? Go ahead, Courtney. No, <laughs> that's my answer. Because in a control room, you know, the thing you need, the displays are up there for multiple people to see. And if one person uh, is the only person that can see it uh, or spot something, you know, it's uh, it doesn't serve everybody else in there. And, and plus, I think the uh, user interface would be difficult to operate since you have to look at something to select it and then do your crab claw pinchers to to hit the button to to switch to it, let's say, if it's a TD. I think he'd get into trouble if something distracts him on camera three is relocating and he looks over at it at the wrong moment. He could accidentally switch to it. I think it would be a very bad choice for uh, switching live video. Go, Jeffrey. So first of all, it's uh, 22 streams of ProRes 422 video, and uh, you have to think of it kind of virtually. Uh, so it's not going to have 22 screens on your eyes as you go. If, if you start turning your head, all of a sudden there's going to be a screen here, there's going to be a screen here. We had a great conversation on this uh, a couple days ago uh, because it's all about the pixels. Now, keep in mind that an 8K video is 33.18 million pixels, 
whereas the screen on the Vision Pro is only 23 million pixels. And then you come into the whole idea of moving it away from your eyes. So instead of an 8K being right in front of you, it's actually going to be to the side and a little bit farther away. Are those going to be true pixels that you see? Because the true pixels are going to be right in front of your face. And uh, that's, a, that's one of the things that a lot of people are trying to really wrap their head around. So in the, in the production room, uh, will, the question will be, will you really need to see that 8K video truly? And if that's the case, then this is just not going to be it because they're kind of making a virtual version of that and shrinking those uh, 23 million, or I'm sorry, 33 million pixels. So you could actually, it actually sets up into your uh, environment. So I don't think it's going to be great for production. Uh, as, and uh, anybody that's doing any type of 8K uh, rendering will probably go back and use a regular monitor. Um, the 8K doesn't matter. The, 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 the 24, if you're talking about a 24-inch screen, let's just say in front of you, uh, the, the, you know, if you're going bigger, then, but a 24-inch screen can be, you know, 2K, <laughs> you're probably going to be fine um, just because of the distance that you're at from, from what you're looking at. So it's great that it can do 8K, but it doesn't really matter that it can do 8K because you could still put those all up at much lower resolution. It wouldn't have any effect on how you feel about what you're looking at there. And you might be able to then zoom it up. If it's 4K, you might, you know, pull it up to see it, to see something. Um, I don't think you're going to see it in the, I don't think you're going to see it in the control room. I do think that there's a place where people might want to, a executive producer might want to throw the headset on at home and look at a bunch of stuff that's coming in, watch the screen in front of them. And this is where, you know, we, for a long time, we had one screen that we could interact with. And, um, and so we had to put everything into that one screen. But now that we have multiple screens in spatial computing, we're going to, be able to put things around. We, we did a, um, a test for golf where we had a clean aperture. So if you think about it, um, we had the, you know, we had a clean aperture here. And if you think about this as a, you know, kind of a, a 360 space here, the, or 180 space, we don't really use 360. Um, so we had that. And then over here, you know, looking to the side was all the stats. So you had all the stats that were going down. There. So the, this is where the golf, the, the rankings, where they were, what they were doing. So you could look over anytime you wanted to get that. And then the second thing that happened is over here, going up the side here like this, was all social media and, you know, your text messages and all kinds of other stuff. So you could sit in what felt like a theater and you had screens that were available to you as needed and you can move, you couldn't move them around. We, but you, with the Apple one, you'll be able to move them around. And so then you're watching this and there's no lower thirds. There's no, you know, there's nothing else that this is all, in fact, we, we had it so that the lower thirds, you know, would be down like under here like this. So when you looked at that clean aperture, you could see it. Now, the other thing that we did is that if you, um, if you get to a certain hole where we have a 360 camera, all of this, you know, this, all of this here would fade out and you would see a 360 shot. You know, you'd go into what Apple would call the space. This is, we didn't do this for Apple. Um, so, but, but the, but you would go into the space and suddenly you're standing on that three, on that hole watching, you know, a golfer theoretically, you know, try to get something in. And, and then we went, and when, when they were done with that experience, we would slowly fade back into those things. And I think that's what you're going to start to see is um, us rethinking, you know, you're not stuck with a screen. And, and, and as we start to go down that path, I think you're going to end up with some really interesting solutions 
um, that are uh, very different um, from from the what, what what we thought. And I think after watching that that golf demo um, that we threw together, it was like I don't want to watch it any other way. And I think that as people start to get as people start to sell, and 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 if Apple is going to have a hard time selling that because they have to show it to you. And you know really useful that they uh, that they spent $10 billion on basically owning all the broadcasts for MLS. So what you're probably going to see is, is solutions that are around sports events like that, where the user and potentially producers will get a heads up of all kinds of things that they may want, um, but not they don't we're not constrained anymore to a single uh, rectilinear screen. And so I think that it's going to be a pretty interesting time when when we start to play with that a little bit more. Um, next question. Comes in from Austin, Texas, and Paul Wallace. He says, Chat GPT versus Bing Chat versus Google Bard. Which is the best AI chatbot? Well, go, John. Certainly subjective, this answer. But uh, first of all, Chat GPT and Bing are the same thing based on GPT 4. Uh, Google Bard is very good. I've been getting, I've been getting better, marginally better results off of Bard lately. Uh, but I always cross reference the two. Yesterday, a company just got funded to the tune of $1.3 billion from Microsoft and from NVIDIA at a $4 billion valuation. It's called Inflection Pi. It's the best conversational chatbot I've ever seen in my life. Go play with it. It's a lot of fun. And it's Inflection Pi? Inflection AI is the name of the company. Oh, Inflection product, AI. Product is called Pi. Got it. Uh, next question. Uh, next one comes in from Douglas Carmichael. And he says, with the proliferation of... Uh, internet protocol-based control and the flexibility that it brings, do you think we'll, uh, you think we'll see GPI control with just a dumb contact closure go away? Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, I don't think you'll see it go away because there's certain aspects which it's, it's direct and it doesn't fail and you don't, you're not dependent on IP infrastructure for it to work. Of course, IP does offer you a lot more flexibility and multiple people to control something without having to connect to it, uh, wired connection to it. But, uh, you know, if you lose your Internet connection or your router goes down, you know, you could be out of business if you have everything is IP controlled. Uh, and has been proven with many uh, home control lights that I have sitting around me right now, if I lose my router... I can't turn the lights off or turn them off. So that is a problem. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, I think there's a saying that says that to error is human, but to really screw things up requires a computer. And um, and uh, I think that we do have to be careful of how much we depend on that. I, I will say contact closures are pretty cool. They may say, we may call them dumb contact closures, but uh, being able to have that level of control over something, we've done some great GPI solutions that, um, uh, GPIO solutions that I think would be difficult, I mean, be doable, but that's a protocol that still works between a bunch of pieces of hardware. Um, I think that it would slow, it would fade out very slowly if it if it fades out. I mean, I, there's somewhere in the future where we're all IP, but I don't think it's going to be um, anytime soon because you know having physical contact closures, especially as a backup, is pretty is pretty useful. Uh, next question comes in from Houston, Texas, and Peter Belbin. He says, has anyone done a side-by-side -side compare of the Insta360 link with the new Ozbot Tiny 2? What are the strengths and weaknesses of each? And it seems like the Ozbot has OSC support out of the box uh, via their desktop control app. Go ahead, John. Why don't you say this, David Paskin, this, this, this week, 
posted in in YouTube and on Facebook a thirty minute review of both those cameras. It's very what, very what, comprehensive. What did he say? What did he? What did David say? I'm not telling. We got to answer the question. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, uh, Tlaloc. So, um, Kyle Hammond did a little bit of a of a shootout in after hours the other day, and I felt like it was hands down the insta insta was better um the from, from an image quality for sure from an image quality looking, like looking at a stop sign versus looking at a person <laughs> like it was so red right um and it seemed like even after making an adjustment of color temperature and taking it off of auto that that stayed the same so yeah i have and that's to across the board on all the options yeah, I have to admit that I, I haven't been that excited about the image quality of OBSBOTs. So while the feature set that the OBSBOT has and the and the ability to do OSC has gotten me uh, excited about the idea that we could use the OBSBOTs, um, I've never seen an OBSBOT that I've liked the video <laughs> coming out of it. So that's been, the, I think that that's the place for them. I think that's the place for them to grow. They're building great tools that are very flexible and controllable and so on and so forth. We also... You know, a lot of us are putting, that's why a lot of us are putting a lot of pressure on Insta360 to release an SDK. It sounds like they're not that far away from doing that. Um, but the, but we've been, again, to come back to it, what, what, that's why a lot of us are going up to GitHub and pushing our request of, hey, we would really like to have, um, uh, uh, you know, an SDK for the Insta360 link. You can get the link to that GitHub in Discord in the announcements that I put out um, yesterday. I'm going to keep on driving that home because we really want to get a lot of people there so that, that we can put some pressure on them and, and have them understand that we really need that to happen um, because we may still go to OBSBOTS at some point, but I don't, I, I agree with you that all, I haven't tested the latest one, but every one that I've tested, I haven't, haven't been that excited and I ended up sending it back. Um, next question. Next one comes in from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. And Paul wants to know, how would you rank cross-platform password managers from best to worst? Would it be number one, Bitwarden, number two, one password, number three, LastPass, number four, Keychain, number five, NordPass, and number six, Other? The most number of people that I know that are moving away from LastPass because of its security flaws um, are going to Bitwarden. So that's the one that most of us, I've, I've, most people I've talked to are going to. Go ahead, Courtney. I would say none of the above. I use, uh, I just use the Chrome password manager that's built into Chrome for managing all the passwords that I use at websites. And Samsung uh, has also a password manager that's built in and it's based on biometrics because it uses my thumbprint. Uh, to lets me sign in with my thumbprint to all that. So it's it's much more secure and I don't have to remember uh, the passwords and it's kept locally so it's not shared with anybody. So I think that's secure and that's, I don't use any of the other password managers. Next question. Oh, that's me. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mike Beardmore from uh, Bedford in the UK says, with Google dropping many products, it is, is it time to abandon Android, Linux, and Windows and uh, admit Apple ecosystem is the only OS to invest <laughs> my limited dollars uh, in? Uh, oh, ahead. my gosh. <laughs> go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah. Um, no, 
It's uh, that's that's the short answer. It, if Google's Google's always played this game of picking up products, and then uh, it, it, Yahoo did the same thing. They picked up a product, they played with it. It was like a kid with ADHD played with it for a while and threw it in the in the. We can see how well that worked for Yahoo. Time. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but the whole point is that uh, Google also knows that they can throw it in the bin, but they can go back to that bin and grab it and use it for something else. And I think that's what's going on here. Plus the fact that every in Windows architecture, in Linux architecture, in Android architecture, anybody can pick up the ball and start redeveloping something like this. All these programs that, he, that we're talking about uh, really are not meaning of anything. Uh, so if as long as things like uh, uh, the browser, like Facebook, like Twitter, uh, exist. Most people are going to be fine with their Android phone. Is if, if they can take a picture, if they can uh, take a video, they're fine with that. So I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. Uh, I'm I am a little bit more concerned that if you put everything into one bin, which uh, that would be the Apple bin, that if anything was to happen, then then all of a sudden you'd be scrambling trying to figure out how to. Uh, how to do what you need to do with with uh, with another device? Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I might remind you that Apple has orphaned more pieces of software and hardware than any of those other people that you're talking about. Every time they come up with a new operating system, a lot of times, oh, that doesn't work with the latest. You know, your software will be orphaned, uh, so you have to deal with that. And also, the um, you know, you're you're great inside that wall garden until they decide to seal up all the ports and cover them over because they looked ugly on all their laptops and you can't get anything in or out. Go ahead, Salak. I think it's important to realize that um, Google is not Linux um, and Google is not Windows. And so, um, you know, you, you, just, you just have to understand that these companies are they have one thing in mind and that is to make the most amount of money that they can possibly make and you, you kind of have to follow along if you want to and don't if you don't i mean it's just that simple good chris uh i'm gonna say it right here google's on the ropes you might want to get out sell your stock <laughs> and if you have if you have any complaints about any of my predictions you can email me at seven three four three two two at compuserve.net <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think that you know, I have uh, I have Android devices and some Windows Windows machines and, and obviously a lot of Macs. I think that um, it, it's a challenge for Google uh, that they cancel so many things of their own. So while Courtney's correct that, that Apple orphans a lot of software, it's usually other people's software that, as they move forward. And they usually give developers, the funny thing about Apple, I've you know, been in a lot of WWDCs. And they'll broadcast it. They'll say, hey, we're going to twilight this in three years or two years or one year. And, and they'll, they'll kind of wind you down. And then, then, then they go, they turn it off and all the developers are like, what happened? And they're like, well, we've been talking about this for a couple of years now. <laughs> like, you know, like, this is how this is going to go. And the developers, you know, don't want to put the effort into rewriting what they have. And Apple doesn't care. You know, like they just, they, they're like, we're moving forward. And they usually give people a lot of warning. Like, just to be fair, like developers get it, but developers... The hard part with Apple is that Apple says, hey, you really should use our, um, you know, you should use our, our libraries and developers get into, well, I want to use my own library or I want to write it myself. And that's when that, the ones that get orphaned are generally people who wanted to do it their own way because Apple will continue to update its own libraries, um, uh, but very rarely or make it easy to move from one library to another. 
But if you're writing something that's outside of their of what they build, then you know that, that's not their problem. You know, and so that so I think that that's the um, that's the challenge you get yourself into with with um, Apple development. On the other side, Google's having a harder and harder time getting people to pick up their pick up their new developments because no one knows how long they're going to last. You know, and so it went from you know it used to be people would say, well, we're going to wait for six months. You know, like let's just see what what happens with Google for the next six months. I've been I spent a lot of time you know doing. Uh, live events uh, with Google. <laughs> and so we got to watch this. And at the beginning, it was like they just wanted to let it sit for a little while and see what happens. Now it's hard to get people to think about it because they're like, oh, that'll be gone in two years. You know, and 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 that's, and so I think that that has gotten much more difficult. There are definitely verticals in Google that don't have that problem. Like YouTube is, YouTube moves very, very slowly and very deliberately. And you tend not to, it's a Google entity but you tend not to see it change direction very often. Um, so it's not all of Google, it is um, specific areas of it. Um, I think that the hardest part for Google and Windows and even Linux is fragmentation. Like how do they deal with fragmentation? Because it's not something that Apple's that challenged with. Apple is getting more and more unified and everyone else is getting more and more fragmented. And so that's difficult. The other thing that has a, keeps a lot of people up at night on the other platforms is that 80% of kids under 18 are on an iPhone. Like, you know, and that is a, that has, that's a lot of people talking about it. And it comes down to, uh, it's a really high number and everyone's worried about it because it is, and it, and I talked to my kids about it because my kids are in that, in that age range. And I said, so what's the deal? And I said, is the, is the green bubble a big deal? And they're like, oh yeah, green bubbles. There's no joke. Like that, you know, no one wants anybody with a green bubble on their, on their, on their, on their, on their chats. And so the, so, so, but, but that is the, that's kind of a wave that's slowly moving forward that everyone's worried about as far as how that goes. So um, I'm glad that all of those platforms exist. I'm glad there are things that I can only do with an Android uh, device. There's things I can only do with a Windows device and I'm glad that they're all there and they're, they're useful. Um, and, uh, but I think that if I was gonna develop, when I develop software, I don't really consider the other platforms as an option. Uh, next question. Comes in from uh, Peter Belkin in uh, Houston, Texas, and he says the regarding the Insta360 Link SDK support, wouldn't we rather have them add the ability to control the camera via OSC interface uh, that their desktop control app should expose? Not saying not to have the SDK, but how many people are going to use that? Taller. I think this is a really good question. Uh, you know, it's sort of a, a matter of thinking. Okay. So do we trust the, that um, Insta360 would make an, an OSC API that had all of the right things for us to, to talk to? Or would we prefer that, that a produ production person or somebody like in this group build a little in-between in um, program that can give us whatever we want in OSC? Uh, so that we could, because we are seeing everything from the SDK. It's probably a good question. I mean, I think maybe from their point of view, it might be better to do OSC because then, then there's more likelihood that they can kind of control how the thing is used and maybe the support would be less problematic for them. But it's a good question. Yeah, I, I, I think I would, if I was going to choose, I'd rather have them do an SDK that ties into everything in the camera and then let someone build an OSC handler that interacts with that SDK. Um, I think you're going to you end up with more flexibility. The Exactly what Talak was touching on is that do we really know that they'll understand OSC enough to give us all everything that we need? I'd rather them give something that they've already done a lot of. So Insta360 has done SDKs for every other camera other than the link. 
And so, um, so they, they know how to do SDKs. I would not want Insta360 to learn something new. Do what you do well, put it out there, and then someone will very quickly, I mean, with the Insta360 link, someone's gonna build an OSC handler very fast, you know, if the SDK comes out. So I don't think, I think we, I'd rather have someone who actually understands OSC, that cares about OSC, building the OSC uh, interface for the SDK, as opposed to Insta360, which I don't think has ever done OSC before. That doesn't seem like a great solution. Uh, next question. Comes in from Douglas Carmichael. He says, I've been struggling with developing creative ideas in my electronic music. And one factor is plug-in sprawl. He says, over the years of collecting uh, virtual instruments and effects, uh, could curating my collection and making templates uh, help rebuild my creativity? Good, Courtney. Yeah, I think it could. Uh, you know, a lot of times we collect all this stuff and we forget what those plugins sound like or what they do. And going through them and organizing them or throwing out or comparing one versus another and throwing out the one that you really don't ever use uh, over the one that you favor most of the time, you know, can can uh, help organize your thoughts and, and get things back into the foreground that you may have forgotten about. So, yeah, it can help rebuild your creativity. You may hear a plug-in going, oh, yeah, I forgot about that, that I had that. You know, I bought that seven years ago, and it's been sitting in the uh, distant folder for, for all that time. So going through and sorting through stuff, I find, stimulates creativity, and it takes me back to uh, listen to all those old vintage effects. Go, Jeffrey. You should see how many in actual instruments I have sitting in this house right now that I don't use. And uh, it, it just becomes, uh, if you start collecting a lot of things, I, got, you know, I can see a couple guitars back there, the ukulele, I, I picked that up last week, my keyboards and everything like that. So that's, that's the same thing is you've got so much time in the day to do anything, then uh, you, just, you just can't pick up every piece of uh, every musical instrument and, and, and try and get an idea from there. The other problem is it, if you're checking, I would go through this list and make sure that they're still working or they're still sounding good. Because if you get a plugin that's like 10 years old, you, it might sound more digital than, than uh, one of the more current versions of that uh, plugin. And then you got to ask yourself, do I want to spend the money to update this plugin just to put it back in the, as you called it, the plugin sprawl? right there. So I would go through, yeah, I would definitely uh, go through and uh, just play and you know, take a day and go through each plugin you have and then just play a couple things and see if that inspires you. And then it just like, uh, I guess it's with the, uh, uh, that Japanese uh, Feng Shui artist that she does the thing on Netflix. It's like, go through your closet and if you haven't worn it in 30 days, put it in another area. And if you still haven't worn it in 30 days, get rid of it. I think the same thing you got you to do here with these plugins. The, the most important thing is to do, do something <laughs> with it uh, rather than fiddle. And, and I think that uh, one of the things that, that, that I still do a lot of visually, and probably less with music, but sometimes with music, is I get something that I really enjoy and I play with how to make it look, sound like something else. So have, you know, pick a heavy metal song and make it sound like reggae or have a, this, do this, something. And, and just, and you don't have to do the whole song, just do a minute, do 30 seconds, do something that forces you to output something that you have to kind of refine and, and, and work on. I have, to, I have to admit that my little thing, if I want to relax, is I take the, the Apple ring, you know, the, the little, the little Embira thing, 
I have the MIDI for that. <laughs> I play with building these like one minute crazy, like sometimes it's like EDM, sometimes it's whatever. And I, it's just a fun little thing to grab onto. And, it, and I don't have to think about it that much. I have a keyboard too, so I play with a couple of things there. But, but for some reason, that one gets me back to, oh, I just feel like hanging out for a half an hour. I'm not trying to produce any music. I'm just, you know, but, but thinking that that has become a little bit of my like wordle is to play with that, that one little tone because it's really simple and, and well-formed. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Uh, yeah, and one thing to to keep in mind is some of some of these plugins are licensed, and uh, I've run across things where yeah, I license that, and you find out the licensing server that has to be online to unlock it every time you launch it has been offline for four years, and so now it's just dead meat. So uh, going through and weeding out the stuff that the licenses have expired on, and you don't need to want to or need to renew them, you know, is a good thing to help you weed through stuff and and pare down your collection. Next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. He says, Tensor AI is an app from the team that made Dispo, a photo sharing app designed to mimic the spontaneity of disposable cameras. Uh, you can chat with AI likenesses. How will this play out? Uh, AI likenesses talking to AI likenesses? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I think that I think that people are going to get saturated with uh, things that are synthetic, and and I think that, that you're going to have uh, kind of a, a backlash of of those types of things. So I think that it's going to be hard to get over that uncanny valley for people. Um, you know, I think that there's other places we might use it, um, but I think that we there's times where we want, we're going to want the real thing, and I think that that's going to drive more towards that. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, we talked uh, yesterday, I think, about uh, telemark handling telemarketers with some type of AI chatbot. That I think um, is going to be amazing. <laughs> that'd be an application. But then we're going to end up with, you know, the telemarketers are now going to incorporate AI bob marketers that are going to call you and pretend to be real people. I've already heard. But then my AI them. will fight their it's, AI. So now we'll have these two AI bots. chatbots just talking back and forth and tying up your phone line for the rest of the day. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Chris. Just one more. That's it. Okay. Uh, I yield my time. Go ahead, uh, Tlaloc, real quick. Oh, we're definitely in that future already. There was a big <laughs> article that I read recently about how, for years, um, they've been they've been doing these doing these very familiar, uh, like, "Hey, how's it going?" Uh, and telling dad jokes. It was all computer. And people, people spent millions of dollars on a scam. Like it's already, we're already. Like, go ahead, Jeffrey. And the one thing that you got to uh, be concerned about is where your data is going. Uh, because this is a company called All Summer Long. I don't believe that they're based in the United States. And so your data is going out there. How are they collecting the data? How are they reusing the data? Because ultimately with these apps, it's as we always say, you are the product. In this uh, in this situation, and they are building a database on what you put into that product. Next question comes in from Eduardo Augustine in Panama, Pennsylvania. He says, "Getting the SMTAV 30x optical 1080p PTZ camera, uh, should I go for 4K to future-proof, or is it uh, not a valid investment for live streaming right now?" Here's a link. Uh, talk. So I think, I think you should invest in the 4k. I mean, I, 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 I think the thing about it is, is that you might be using it to live stream, 
but, it, but it's a PTC camera. So you might also be using it for something else. And if you're using it for something else, you might want to, to make um, 9 by 16 uh, f- aspect ratio. And when you do that, you're just cutting pixels away. So get as many pixels on tape. <laughs> I know that's skeuomorphic, but get, a, get as, as, as many pixels there as you possibly can so that when you have to cut them away to do other things with them, you've got more. Yeah, with the link here, it it looks like it's linking to a uh, to an to something that's 1080p um, as far as that goes, and it's a one third inch pix, uh, one third inch chip, so it's not going to have very much depth of field. So just kind of keep that in mind as well. Go ahead, Jeffrey. It's also it, it's 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 regular PTZ camera. I mean, you can do SDI, you can do HDMI on it. You can uh, you can connect it up to an RS two thirty two. I don't, and it says it does NDI as well. So you have a lot of different options. I don't think, I don't think 1080p is going to go away anytime soon, especially when you're talking about going to YouTube or, or Twitch or anything like that. If you want to call up a really quick behind the scenes camera, even if you go all 4K, this is a perfect behind the scenes type camera that you can utilize and you can, uh, you can control put it up in the rafters and, and control move around. It could even become a security camera. So I think there's a lot of good use for that. Uh, future-proofing, yeah, 4K PTZ cameras, they're fairly expensive nowadays. They're starting to drop in price. So I would still give it about a year uh, to get it in a price range that actually works. Go ahead, Chris. About, uh, Eduardo, about 40 years ago, I worked in a store and I saw a product and I thought, you know what? I could, I won't go into the details. I'm going to need that one day and I bought it. And it wasn't inexpensive. I never used it. I would recommend buy what you need, when you need it, save the money. Yeah, and I, I'm going to keep underlining because I have the luxury of data of how long people watch things oftentimes that are done, you know, in the back of rooms and hybrid events and everything else. The, the watch time and the dwell time and the, and the attention time is very low. Um, you know, like it's not, it's a really brutal, uh, you know, the numbers are really brutal. And so I just, you know, like I know that a lot of people think about this, like I can put it in the back of my church and I can put it in the back of my, uh, and put it in the conference room. The, what people are doing when you do that is largely doing something else on their computer screen. Um, that's the data that we had. And that was, that, that's 15 years old data. <laughs> it's not new data. Uh, it is when you are just putting a screen, a screen back there, people aren't watching um, and so, so I think that you just, you just want to keep that in mind when we think about all these PTC cameras in the back of rooms and so on and so forth. And I've did hundreds, hundreds, poss- possibly low thousands of events this way. And I'm just telling you that I don't think it's effective. Like it's, it's, I don't think it, I don't think you get a lot out of it. Um, so you just want to kind of think through that. Um, next question. Comes in from uh, Chris Widener in Lafayette. I guess that's Louisiana. It says, what are you doing for location-based social media traffic drivers? He has a nonprofit that wants to advertise to everyone that stops to see a display set up in a park. Probably Facebook, yes. Uh, QR codes are pretty useful. Um, so that's, you know, so you want to think about a QR code that's going to send someone somewhere, you know, to make that actually happen. Uh, I, I don't know if there's a lot of social media that is that effective. I think there's a growing, you know, dislike for, you know, a lot of people just aren't using Facebook the way that they used to. Definitely, if you're looking for a younger audience, you're not going to see a lot of interaction. I don't know any of my kids' friends that are on Facebook at this point. So so I think that those are, you know, those can be challenging. Snap isn't, Snap is popular. <laughs> so uh, that seems to be the one that a lot of kids are on because their parents don't understand it. I don't understand it. But, uh, um, but you know, there's a growing number of... Uh, 
kids also that are just not doing social media. You know, I, I talked to I talked to my daughter, and she's like, I, people can text me. You know, like, like you know, like, and I don't need. She's, she's, you know, and she's like, they have to have, they have to come up and ask. They don't, I don't want to make it easier. Um, and so, uh, so I think that there's, there's actually a growing. Uh, we're starting to see a growing number of people at a cer- certain age group that are actually opting out of social altogether. So I think that that's another thing to kind of keep in mind of watch that, watching that trend. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, as Alex said, a, a QR code if you want to drive people to your specific site. I would uh, putting a public kiosk up and exposing it to unmoderated uh, social media feeds or streams. Well, I don't think dangerous. he said a public kiosk. I think he just said display set up in a screen. You know, like I don't in know. A park. It's, but it's just that like, sounds like a, a display. Public. I guess I would say a display is a, I don't know. The, I don't know if he meant. Oh, maybe maybe he wasn't talking about a yeah. digital display. Maybe he was just yeah. talking about a sign or something. But yeah. yeah, I would be careful about if it if you were talking about a kiosk or something with a, a digital display, mm-hmm. be careful about putting anything up unmoderated because people will game it then just to destroy it. Good, Chris. I think it'd be super interesting, Alex, if we did a series of shows, maybe, you know, like one Monday a month or something like that, where we take the various um, social media platforms, Snap, Insta, Facebook, you know, whatever, uh, MySpace, uh, and we and we tear them apart, and, and, and not criticize them, but but we but we break them. In. Bring somebody, bring bring somebody on who really does love Snapchat. Uh, my family loves Snapchat. They that's their instant messenger. They use that over FaceTime to talk to people live, face to face. Weird. Uh, but it'd be interesting to to kind of bring on an expert to explain the pros and cons and ins and outs and benefits of those various platforms so that we don't have to say, I don't understand that. Yeah, I think think it'd be good to break it down. It'd be a good Monday subject, you know, to to kind of look at social media and where it's at and what people are using and how they're using it. I think it's probably something we have to check that temperature almost once a quarter to just see what, or once a year or once every six months of like, where is social media and what are people using and what are some good, you know, processes in that. So yeah, so I think that's a really good idea. Um, I'll give you a a business idea that I had many, many years ago, (laughs) which is that uh, I always wanted to have a place where you could take pictures. It would be a kiosk that would take pictures like at the Grand Canyon and then print a postcard of you and your family, but it would print a real postcard out for you. Um, This was long before social media. I think now you could still do those printers at parks and so on and so forth. You take a picture with your phone, you wirelessly connect it to it, and it prints a real postcard that you can send to people that feels thick and does all the things. And there's your business model for the, for the morning. Uh, next question. Sorry, mouse failure. Next That's question you, comes in from Robert Shoji in Los Angeles. who says, Courtney, yes. How was the Simpty meeting event last night? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, it was, uh, for those that you missed, we were talking about was the uh, HBO uh, camera assessment series for 2023 was screened last night at the Linwood Dunn Theater. And it was a room packed full of cinematographers. If you dropped a bomb there, we probably couldn't produce anything for television for the next three or four years. Um, It was interesting. It was long, 96 minutes long. Uh, It looked great. and just quick conclusions from the the cameras that were compared, which consisted, I'll just briefly list off the cameras, the Aria Alexa, there was the Blackmagic uh, Ursa Mini 12K, there was the uh, Red 5 
Monstro. Anyway, I can't remember what their other superlative was on that. There was the uh, Alexa uh, 35, which is their new 35, uh, Super 35 sensor camera. And there was the uh, Venice 2 uh, from Sony, Sony Venice 2, and uh, Kodak, good old Kodak 35 millimeter film, 5219, uh, in comparison. They did, they spent millions of dollars on this, I'm guessing. They built giant sets like uh, Wes Anderson, cutaway sets, two-story set with actors in uh, each of the rooms, moving back and forth between each of the rooms. Each of the rooms lit differently. You know, one is daylight, one is nighttime with TV viewing, one is an attic with uh, light streaming through a window. And uh, uh, and then they compared over, you know, four stops over, four stops under, you know, once, you know, at one stop intervals for each of these cameras. So it gets fairly tedious to keep track of all this stuff and look at it. But one thing I came out uh, noticing is that most of those cameras were probably interchangeable. They did a really good job of, uh, of matching the, the cameras one to the other. And uh, although they did use a fixed LUT for both of them, they weren't doing scene to scene correction with it. Um, one thing was very obvious though, is 35 millimeter is not a choice anymore. <laughs> <laughs> because it, it, you know, every time the 35 millimeter clip came up, it was like, now here's stuff we shot by moonlight. And it was just black. <laughs> the, the digital is and finally I, passed. And I make that a shape there? I don't yeah. think so. Yeah. So it, it, and the grain size when they overexposed and underexposed and brought things back to the usable uh, visual, visual range, it just became, you know, up. flying ping pong balls. Yeah. So that's my, my assessment. Unfortunately, I don't think this is anywhere where you can download or stream it. They, they have showed it. They did show it at Cine Gear. Uh, and because it's 96 minutes long, it takes a long time to, to wade through it. You should take notes because you will forget. By, by the time you see the same thing over and over again for each camera, you forget which camera looked better than which camera by the time they get to the sixth different lighting hmm. setup, et cetera. Interesting. Uh, maybe we should see if we can get it up in the North Bay with, at a theater that, near us. <laughs> uh, last question for the first hour. Comes in from uh, Dave Kaufman in Vancouver, British Columbia. He says, regarding QR codes, do you have a professional, a preferred generator? I'm always surprised uh, that when you print your camera to a Q, when you point your camera to a QR code, uh, the preview has some unknown vendor like QR code who could insert a math code. 100%, never use an online tool to do this. Never use an online tool to build a QR code. Um, you can, there are, there are ever, like never, ever, never, 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 ever use an online tool. I use QR, fa QR, QR Factory on the Mac, um, but there are other standalone ones that are, that are there. And um, so QR Factory is a standalone Mac app that, Listens to me when I send them complaints. <laughs> so, so anyway, so I have a, so a lot of the, the it's 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 it uh, it um, uh, they they're very responsive um, and I highly recommend it if you're on the Mac. There's PC ones. There's also like literally scripts that you can write that will run that will do that in the OS. So you can. There's a lot of different ways to do it, but never use an online. Don't ever d d develop your QR codes online. Always do them on home. You don't know what's going into that QR code. Um, so so definitely don't don't do that. So I've done it. The reason I'm telling you not to do it is because it was a big mistake. Because what what will happen is they'll be like, "Hey, you're not paying for it. We're gonna we're gonna reroute all the things that you had there to something else." You know, because they they want you on a subscription model and everything else. But even if it's free, do not trust. Don't do that. Yeah. 
Um, uh, next, okay. That's all I got. I, I wanted to answer that question because it's really important because so I really never pay is the what price. You're saying. Say never, ever, never, never, ever, never. Draw your own QR codes with a pen and paper. Exactly. Just, you, you, you'll learn what the code means and you'll just be able to draw it. All right, we're jumping into our uh, second hour and uh, we're really excited to have Tlaloc here to talk to us a little bit about DMX. If you've got questions about DMX, go ahead and throw those questions in as we start to talk. Uh, we're really excited. I think that DMX is a, is a very important subject. A lot of us are trying to get, get our heads around it as we uh, you know, add controls to not just our uh, lighting, but just a lot of other, um, lot of other devices. And so um, anyway, so we're, we're really excited to have this. So, Tlaloc, can you uh, give us a little bit of an overview? Yeah, so I mean, DMX is something that has been around uh, and standardized since about 1990. Um, and, and a lot of people say, well, why are we still using it? Because it's old and kind of antiquated. But the, the, the truth of the matter is, is that it allows us to continue to use uh, dimmers and uh, fixtures and functions from, uh, from tw for 20, 25 years. And that's really, really important in the theater industry. Um, I realize that not many people here are theater people, but that is, you know, it would be deadly if we weren't able to go into a into a venue and utilize some of the equipment that they have. It would just, it would just kill, it would kill the the process. So it keeps things going, it keeps things working. Um, but what is it? It is a way in which to associate levels with a particular address. And um, it started out that you're taking a signal out of a lighting console and you're sending essentially frames like we do in, in video, right? A frame with 512 addresses that then each one of those 512 addresses has a level associated to it. So, And what's the uh, range of that level? So you have 512. So one universe is 512. Is that right? Yeah. So that's what you call that. I mean, that grouping of yeah, 512 Yeah, one universe is, 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 is 512, and it was not called a universe until until we, you know, like, like Ran started. out of 512. Like, it was like, it's just what you had, right? It, yeah, well, I mean, it was just 512. Like, you've never, you never went beyond that, right? <laughs> and so right. then, then... And, and, um, and, and then what's the, and what's the, what's the number of variables for each one of those addresses is it 256? 255 oh, 255. well 256 was zero right yeah. so, so um and 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 the and so and so it's eight bit and right and, and that and the reason for that is that literally when we're sending that sending this this signal across these wires you have a time location for each 512 addresses mm -hmm. and then a tiny time location for each eight bits right after that and so it, it, timing is 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 everything you have this start of the frame it's just like it's just like video but it's very much simpler version of video right right where you have a, a blanking frame and then you have each each channel and and in, it's sending in, this constantly right it's not it's not something that is like it yeah. sends it when it needs it it's just there's it, 512 addresses giving getting a value Yes, through the system exactly. all the time, right? So it, is that? Yeah. So it's it just sends five twelve five twelve, and if, if you're not using it, it just it's zero or at whatever. it yes. was. Yeah, it send it'll send zero. It'll send zero. It'll send zero. Like if you have nothing on, it'll just send five hundred and twelve addresses okay. at zero every time. And and, and now, the way that it does that is by eight eight peaks inside of that timing, 
that that essentially make that eight bit um, that oh, eight bit. That's so, 250. So it's just, like, it, it's right? just like a it's on or off across those eight eight yeah. electrical peaks. Um, it's you know exactly it, it, in that timing. Oh, I got it. And the and then and the, so there's these yeah go ahead. There's these chips, DMX chips that you'll find in every one of these devices. If you ever like everything about this thing works, mm-hmm. but I can't control it. Open it up and see if there's a little square chip that has fallen out because they they literally fall off their inserts. Right. Drop it back in and the thing will start working again. Because that that math is being done inside of that chip. And now when it sends out that when it sends out those eight peaks, so is it sending out five hundred and and twelve packages of eight all right after each other? So it's just like like super it's one frame. It's thought of as one frame. Yeah. So yes. I mean it's it's like Frame start, which is a particular blanking uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, voltage, or not voltage, but time. Right. And then all 512, and it, it just repeats itself. Dot, 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 dot. Right. So when when we started to get into the fact that, oh, we have networking, and then we needed a protocol that we could send this same information across a network packet, right? To do it in the same way. And so it essentially is taking a single packet and repeating it like a frame instead of doing it with voltage across across a cable. Right. And and there's two protocols for that. One of them is called uh, ArtNet and the other one is called SACN. And they're just slightly different in the way that they are built. Um, a lot of SACN is utilized in your, um, like it's the, in your bigger systems, SACN is used because it's it, it connects up really easily without having any kind of configuration to mm-hmm. it. It just kind of outputs multi uh, multicast, mm-hmm. and um, but a lot of the types of what we call DMX gateways that that we're going to use in this group are actually ArtNet or their ArtNet. They're and this both. is taking basically every frame is a uh, four kilobits, right? Like forty ninety six. That's the the, the bits, right, that are going out, I think, you know, so it's it's not very much data. Like when we think it's about It's not the, very much data. Yeah. It's like 49, I think it's four kilobits per frame is is what's going to go out. And then those get converted back to those electrical signals, which are 4,096 pulses. Exactly. That happen very, very fast um, that, that are going out. And and any given device, it's not like one device is, is, a, is a single one of those 512s, right? Every device has its own, like there's RGB, there's brightness, there's yeah. a bunch of other things. So, so a, a given device, how many, how many de- uh, signals might a device need to be controlled? Well, I had I was just looking at the Eurovision show that uh, that's that's going on right now for 2023, and they're using I think Roby Fortes, and those um, have 52 uh, attributes to them. Right. So just one and, light is 52 of the 512. So that's you have 10 lights, and that's one whole universe, right? Yes. Um, so that's one whole universe. So if you have um, there are I think six hundred Roby Fortes in the Eurovision show. Um, so That's a lot of universes, and 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 then they have a whole bunch of LED tape, and they have a bunch of that they're pixel wise controlling. So the, the stat is that there's seventeen thousand five hundred, um, I believe, attributes, but it may just what they said in the article was light sources in that show, right. which right. is mind-blowing. Well, and, and so that means like right. if you have a tape, if you have a tape of LEDs, 
that could theoretically, if you can change the color and the brightness of those LEDs, that means that yeah. it's like four, you know, like it'd be like it, it, it could potentially be four or even eight addresses per LED, right? Correct. And so you have to take like if you have a lot of times we'll have the the big we there's there's these LED curtains and mm-hmm. we'll want pixel wise control of those. You might have six or seven universes just on that, right? right. And um, and it, it 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 fills up really quickly. And this how you- is how this is how these large consoles work with money. Like <laughs> they they are expensive because yeah. they can output that kind of that kind of universe. Because like like and basically you have uh, so they're integrating all those universes. So you could have you know an ETC console with eight universes or twenty universes or whatever, and it is organizing all of those. Is that right? Yeah. It's organizing it and it's sending, and 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 I'll I can go in a little bit uh, to to some of that um, how it works on an ETC console for example yeah um, um, but but what you got to think about is it's a lot of number managing right because you have what we call a fixture number and a fixture number is what a lighting designer wants to call it like fixture one is the most important fixture and I'm not going to call it address three hundred and sixty nine. Um, and and right. ask for a- address 369 i'm going to call it what i want to call it which is one right right and so and so that's where patch comes in um and here let me share my screen real quick um and so if i call up if i call up fixture 1 what you notice is that there's a lot of attributes available there right you've got intensity <clears throat> um you've got pan and tilt uh that pan You've and tilt your, is more than one attribute, right? Like the pan and tilt is going to give it. Yeah. Like when so you're moving that pan and tilt around, you're doing it graphically, but that's a bunch of channels to tell it to get it to it, where it needs to go. It's it can be up to it can it can be a couple a couple of channels like speed, but really in its simplest form, it's two channels, right? It's it's oh, right. zero through two fifty five in pan and tilt, right? Mm-hmm. Um. And what you see here is uh, X focus, Y focus. Those those are actually virtual. So the console can build virtual handles that allow you to do things that are not sending that are that are combining. It's like on an RC control uh, right. remote control. You you combine things so that two channels are moving at the same time. Um, and each one of these. Things you know the col- color you have in this case you have CYE CYM. Sorry, CYM mixing, cyan, magenta, yellow mixing. You have different colors you can call up. That'll that's a sen- these are all everything's on a stepper motor and a moving light, right? So you're you're mm-hmm. sending a command to a stepper motor that moves it along that axis of where you know zero to two fifty five, um, and 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 it keeps going, right? You got you got all these other attributes. And again, one um, of the things that the ETC, as you were talking about, just to really underline it. It has raw data that it's sending out to the that it, it has to figure out, but you're able to build essentially a macro or abstract that away. So you can have one dial that's going to move a whole bunch of it's going to send out a whole bunch of commands to potentially a lot of different lights, um, but, or even to one light. I just wanted to move the light somewhere. Like when you saw when you saw that little graphic, I'm moving pan and tilt. Yeah, it's figuring out what it needs to do to execute that, and you don't have to do it explicitly. Yeah. So like here. Um, I will show you that we have, I'm going to get my moving light controls. So we have this, we have this light, it's on at full. 
now it's on, you can see I'm actually visualizing this light, right? So, and I can move, I can pan and tilt this around like so, and I'm going to point it at, at us. And I'm doing that by just moving the, by moving the pan and tilt right. functionality. And that's exactly what would happen in, 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 in the air. You know, the light right. would do what that is. Um, and, uh, and so, but okay, let's say you've just got a panel that is lighting you up in your office and you want control of that. Well, the thing about it is, is that too might have more than one attribute because you're going to have uh, a warm LED engine and a cool LED engine so that you can move back and forth between a, a higher and a lower color temperature mm -hmm. and, and get what you want to do for, for your imagery. So still you're looking at a fixture number like my let's say my Astra is in front of me and I want fixture number one to be my key light. And when I click on that, I'm going to, I'm going to get, um, I'm going to get those, those different handles into the, into that color temperature. The reason I bring this up is because this is one of the first things that people kind of misunderstand about how this all works. Like they want to think about it like the old dimmers where it's one-to-one. -one. Like I want a handle for blue and I want a handle for, for, for yellow, which you can do that, and, but you have to build it differently. And it is, it is a little bit, it ties your hands to work that way. Um, and then uh, the other thing I wanted to point out is that when we start getting into ArtNet and SACN, you can do, uh, I'll stop sharing for a second. Uh, you, you can do a lot of, more, you can do more things. You can start to say, okay, well, I would like to build something on an Arduino. And I can take the ArtNet library, ArtNet uh, library, and, and load it onto the Arduino. And it can see those packets coming in on Ethernet or on Wi-Fi. And it can give us out it can give us output voltage on our on our PWM, on our IO, on our Arduino. And you can build candles and you can build, can, you know, all you, kinds of things. Can you uh, say what PWM is? Define it for everybody. Pulse with modulation. And what that does is it takes the voltage that you have on your Arduino, which is usually, um, I think it's five, usually five volts, but you can also up and down that. But it cuts it, it, cuts it up in, right. a, in an incredibly fast way so that it can dim and, 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 and brighten um, you know, an LED coming off of that or even a non-LED. Like sometimes I, I made candles out of little um, grain of wheat lights, which are actually... Little incandescent lights, um, and, and, but you run into power management. And, and is it an Arduino for every one of those lights, or is it a do you do, or do you have it like controlling a lot of lights? What I yeah. So what I did was I took a one of the um, RS uh, thirty two modules, which is the Arduino infrastructure, but with a Wi Fi backpack or Wi Fi on it, mm -hmm. and uh, I put all that ArtNet into it, and sent, and, and then I took five. Um, five grain of wheats and I and I put it into a epoxy mold that looked like a flame and then put epoxy in there and then awesome. and then you have you can you can flicker between those little grain of wheats and make it look much more realistic when it comes to fire um cool. <laughs> so that there's that and then the other thing we wanted to touch on and I'm saying I'm kind of doing this um a quick overview so that maybe it'll knock questions loose for the for the viewers right um the other thing you can do is you can send dmx into the virtual world um, right so unreal engine has some some plugins that allow you to 
literally take fixtures. And, and you can literally, you can download a theater. There's a theater model in Marketplace that's like 30 bucks or something like that. And you download it and it's the stage and it comes with lights and the lights are already pre-wired for DMX. Yeah. And my only complaint yeah. <laughs> is that I wish that they were exactly like the real light lights. Oh, uh, yeah. And um, which I think that somebody's probably working on that or maybe they already have and I haven't found it yet. But mm -hmm. if I can take, if I can take a situation and do a virtual background and I have a set of Roby Fortes, like we're talking about from Eurovision, and I can ha also have those Roby Fortes that have all the same attributes and all the same op op optical properties in my virtual world as I do in my, in my real world, then I'm going to be a lot happier as a designer to be able to, you know, match those and make those do something that, that yeah. combine in a similar way. And so, there's and the power there is like we one of the things that that Flawlock and I worked on was having a a situation where we had a physical person on a stage in front of a green screen getting lighting, and there was a virtual background behind them getting that was being controlled by DMX and a venue that people could watch this that had its own lighting, <laughs> and all of them are in the same. They're all getting DMX controls so that you could integrate a physical foreground with a virtual um, background with a the venue itself and that could be done over the internet um you know so it's not it it is a uh, it's and you could theoretically have 40 of those venues <laughs> that are getting the same commands that are all tied into the the unreal engine which is tied into the physical um, experience and so you could really create something that is uh, very very scalable with that it was, it was and, exciting in regards to, to latency you know i mean yeah that there has to be figure compute that happens. So I think what, what what I would do as a designer is I would build into my cues the idea that maybe, you know, there's a wave coming in real lights and then they, they end up, you know, a yeah. slight adjustment in that same wave coming from. So you, you're getting the sense of where you are or in the, and, in the video or, you know, and, like and you, you, you literally in that sense, you start it. getting to time where you're, where you, uh, yeah you have to calculate for every venue that you could be talking to, you ca calculating the latency to each venue so that everything re reaches there at the same time. Yeah, and I think it's, it's important. Time is everything. I mean, when, when I was, here's the thing, different fixtures have different stepper motor speeds. Right. And, and, different, and different features in there, even in their firm, firmware that protect themselves from breaking apart because they're moving too mm -hmm. fast. And I ran into this once I was doing a show and I wanted a really, really sharp blackout. I wanted everything to turn off right at the same time. And, and, the, and the thing about it is, is your incandescent lights take a second to turn off. There's this fade out, right, that happens. Right. Um, so I built a, a whole thing that was mostly, uh, mostly arc lights with, you know, with a stepper motor and a fader on it. And they weren't closing fast enough. So I... I started looking up and contacted the, the company and they're like, oh yeah, we, we made something for Natasha Katz on Broadway. We'll send you, we'll send you a, a piece of firmware that'll speed that up. But be aware, you're probably gonna have to glue the glass back on the stepper motor every night because it moves so fast. <laughs> and so... <laughs> 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 and so they sent me this thing and I put it up there and I, and I did that blackout and it was like, and it was perfect. But every second night or so we had to go up and re-glue that glass. <laughs> so. That's amazing. Uh, Courtney, do you have, do you have a, a comment or question? Yeah, I had one question. Uh, 
for DMX five twelve signaling uh, is unidirectional, uh, packet based, but can you use it for triggering things? Because of that, that has no error correction. Uh, other than maybe maybe if you send it over IP over HTTP, convert it to that, it does. But can you still can you use it for triggering a, a pyro or lasers or something that could affect someone's health other than lighting or stage movement movement of stage pieces, uh, chain winches, et cetera? Can you use it for controlling those kind of things? That's a really good question. It's it's, it's been in the sort of general knowledge of things to never use um, DMX as a as a in a life and death safety situation for for that very reason um and so what we we kind of do is we we say okay is is this it may be stage automation but if if it's not going to affect life then we can still use it with that um but for the most part we just don't you know um error correction yes there is some error correction but not the kind you're talking about corny but i do want to bring it up really quickly the actual dmx cable is um is an interference uh error correction right so you it 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 has both the the positive and negative of those signals and it the chip is looking at the difference and trying to make sure that it's not it's not doing something from an from a standpoint of interference and um and so uh and then the other error correction that that exists or the bidirectional side that corrects is a thing called rdm <laughs> and rdm is essentially a packet going the other way up and it'll give you information about the light um, and whether or not you have a burnout or there's a problem or, you know, you can, you can kind of do a little more work. Uh, is, that, going, is that carried on a separate uh, pair of wires or is that no, same uh, wire multiplex down the same one? Yeah. Um, I, I, is that, I does have, that happen in both the three pin and five pin? Um, that happens. <laughs> very good question. That actually happens in, um, yeah, I believe it does happen in both. Okay. I believe it does happen in both. But it, 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 I think it's a broken system. I turn it off because <laughs> it makes so many things behave wrongly. It's chatty. Um, yeah. So um, I often turn it off. But I think it's getting better. There's going to be a, a moment in time when there's uh, enough things that get thrown away from, you know, the early 2000s that it won't be an issue anymore. Um, but um, how, how old is DMX? 1990. Wow. <laughs> and then before that, that was just like people moving things up and down. Before that, it was AMX. So, and okay. then before that, it was direct dimming. So AMX is a zero to 10 volt um, right. DC line that is a is data, is analog data. You know, so you're sending zero to 10 volts and saying, this is where I want my 120. Now, theoretically, that, like many things, theoretically, AMX could, might have more resolution in some ways, right? right. Because it's analog. But it is a total pain because (laughs) they did it. It was parallel. Right. (laughs) So you had to send a lot more cables. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) And it varies, varies. uh, DC voltage varies on the length of cable you're sending it to. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a guy, there's a, there's a company called Doug Fleener. Yeah. uh, Who's amazing. Like anything that that worked poorly because it was 20 years old and you needed to make it, make an adapter. He made that adapter. Like, oh, I'll just funny. go get the Doug Flaner box. <laughs> so, is Doug Flaner still around? Is it, yeah, is he's, he's still around. Yeah. Get him on the show. Be yeah, that. Now he's that so prepping. cool. <laughs> awesome. Um, let's, let's, let's jump into the questions. First okay, question. great. 
All right. First one in comes from Andy uh, Kokendorfer in Yarra, Florida. He says, can you recommend a small portable DMX lighting kit to support panel discussions on a small stage? Three to four people. Go Tonic. Yeah, I think if you get something like the Astras, um, get some panel, some actual panel light lights that have some color color adjustment, I would say um, maybe 10 of those. Um, and uh, which is nice and soft, and you can you can even diffuse it further. And then I would simply get an Entech um, uh, DMX gateway or a uh, or a DMX King. Um, there's a question. There's, there's there's always questions about whether or not to do USB only or to do um, Ethernet. I would always err on the side of Ethernet, and I would always err on the side of PoE. Um, because you're going to use that in different places, in different situations, and not right next to your computer. And so you can you can take that 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 gateway and you can put it right on the pipe, right next to the light, and then you don't have to deal with as much uh, um, DMX cable. Um, and uh, and and you can just run it, run Ethernet right to it. And I, I work at a theater regularly that at every corner it, it's a grid style, um, you know, catwalk style, and it. And at every corner is an is another gateway for just that those 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 little you know eight by yeah. eight squares. Would you would yeah? Would you ever yeah yeah put a, a gateway theoretically? I mean, it'd be expensive, but you could put one on every light, right? I mean, just every single light. Yeah, and that's starting to happen. So some lights have Ethernet input, e- Ethernet connection points, and this is there's a super super annoying and a super great part of this. The the newer and more expensive lights actually have a gateway right on board. So you can just drop it right in and tell it what universe it's going to use, and you're you're done. The bad part is that some lights have an Ethernet cable instead of a DMX plug, but they don't have a gateway on board. So what they want you to do is adapt to DMX, which just makes no sense. Right. Um, so <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, next question. This one comes in from uh, Matt Parker in Sarasota, Florida. He says, when buying a USB to DMX interface, what should we look for to have it supported in a wide variety of software packages? Coach Hawk? Um, Overall, all the USB uh, interfaces work work for all of the different uh, uh, software. And do you want to use USB or do you want to use uh, uh, Ethernet? You want to use Ethernet. Uh, yeah, this is sort of what I was just talking about. I would I would hi- highly recommend using Ethernet because I mean, the one advantage of, the, of, of USB is it can it's connected to your computer. Like if you're in in my in my room and I've got some DMX yeah. lights here that I'm fiddling with, um, yeah. the USB might make sense because it's right there. But as soon as you're going any any distance, USB gets really useless after about 15 feet. Yep, it does. And and if you've already got a network set, set up in your in your house and you're not adding one more thing to a computer's uh, IO. Um, it's just it's just part of the part of the system, and I I recommend it. And my obsession right now is getting you know we my my family does lip sync nights, and I can tell you DMX lighting connected to stuff <laughs> the best, especially for a smoke machine. All right, next question coming in from uh, Brian Osterhaus Osterhout in uh, Modesto, California. He says, what software do you recommend to emulate DMX lights so you can program shows without setting up the actual lights? Go ahead, The first place to start, it's absolutely f- free um, until you need to actually output with it, but um, uh, is um, 
is ETC to start with, to kind of get a sense of that. That's what I was showing you a second ago. And they have a service associated with it called Augment Reality. And you can patch your lights and then place them in space and turn them on and make them see what they do. And you can turn down the the ambient light. You can add haze to the air. And it's uh, it's all all in one sort of really, really great. And then, and then you can get better from there. You can go to Vectorworks Vision or Nemechek Vision, which allows you to do a, what, what you see is what you get um, and patch an entire show and build it on your three-dimensional um, drafting of the space and of the set that you've got. You can go into um, uh, Unreal. You can do what 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 you see is what you get there. There are other what you see uh, what you see is what you get. Wisewig uh, options all over. Um, they sort of have been adjusting over the years. That we've had there was a there was a company called Wisewig that that did this, and it's been around for twenty years. Well, not twenty for fifteen years. And so this is this is something that people do, and it is. Um, there's just a lot more. There's there's a bunch of options now, especially when when you come into Unreal. Next question. John Foltz in Ceilings Grove, um, Pennsylvania says, how do you change over from an ETC grid where DMX signals adjust AC voltage for dimming to newer fixtures with uh, constant AC and dimming is handled in the fixture with DMX control? Go to Lonnie. So I want to, uh, first of all, just say it doesn't, an ETC grid is kind of a misnomer because ETC has a bunch of intelligent lighting. It has moving lights. It 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 bought high-end systems. So a bunch of moving lights are under their capacity. So not just an ETC grid, but I think what you're talking about is uh, a dimmed uh, system. You have like ETC sensor racks, which you'll have 96 or 12 or 24 dimmers. They'll be in another room and you'll have DMX uh, going to those dimmers and you'll be able to pull, bring up any one of those dimmers and then turn on incandescent, turn on and off incandescent lights or whatever else you're trying to do. And they, um, and so the, the main consideration, <clears throat> there's a couple co- main considerations. One is have enough universes in your system when you start to move over to intelligent lights. Cause if you have 96 dimmers in your, in your theater and you're moving over to 96, just for s- simple, uh, thought process here, 96 intelligent lights, you've immediately gone to a lot more addresses. So you need to have enough universes to be able to, 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 to run that in your, in your control system. And when you purchase, like, for example, if you purchase a Nomad, which is a, a, a key, a dongle key for the ETC system you can use on your computer, um, it starts out with two universes. <laughs> and so if you, if you upgrade it, it'll go to, it'll go to 12. So things will, be you know you, you'll need to just make sure you don't you don't run into that problem um and then the other thing is getting hot power to uh to all of these lights that have constant power and you do not want to plug a dimmed circuit into your essentially robot light because it's bad it's really bad for the for the power supplies and and it will not they'll they just won't last and 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 they'll they'll act weird i've noticed um so what what the nice way to do it is to take those ET, those sensor racks have modules for each one of the, for two pack of a dimmer. And they have, they have DMX controlled relays that you can just slot in. And then that circuit becomes a hot power safe for your, for your intelligent lighting. Next question. 
Comes in from uh, Dave Kaufman in Vancouver, British Columbia. He says, do you actually use real DMX cables? Audio XLR cables seem to work okay for our small use, but am I tempting fate? Go ahead, Lollard. You're probably not tempting fate. The problem is that the impedance is slightly different. Um, and so it's, you're pushing, if you, if you end up adding more lights, um, cause it really has to do with voltage as always. Right. So if you're adding more lights to your system, um, and you have a different, a, a higher impedance in that system, then at the time when you add that one extra light, that is going to be super important for your, for your situation is when you'll start to see failure. You'll start to see flickering because what happens is the timing with that extra impedance, the timing starts to go off. As we were talking about before, it's all about time in that frame. And so if you start to go off that time, then you're going to have different levels for different. um, The the level of channel one is going to show up on channel two, if that makes sense. And so, um, and then the other thing that I, that I will bring up is if you are going to use the wrong impedance, then definitely use what's called a terminator at the end of your line. And that's just a little um, pull-up resistor that then brings those voltages back up into to the right level. Next question. From Mike Beardmore in Bedford, UK, says, what is the best role for hardware such as Raspberry Pis in interfacing and controlling DMX devices? Go talk. So I... I think you could probably, I don't know if you can run, um, if you can run any, any lighting control software on Linux, um, but you probably could, you can, you might be able to run it as a, as a, as an actual light board. Um, but because Raspberry Pi also has IO, you could build things that, um, that do things like, you know, a bunch of fireflies in a set, or, you know, you can build all kinds of pull, pull, the voltage out of there and you know you gotta, you gotta do your diagram your wiring diagram so you're not blowing anything up but going to to, to different um leds and to do to do different work in that way and then you can connect it to the control to the uh, dmx i do this sort of thing and i mentioned it before with arduino uh, along the same lines because it's got io and you can um you can go online and you can find the artnet library and load it onto that onto that machine and it'll just and then you can patch it. So you can say, okay, I want my starting address. It's universe six, let's say. I want my starting address to be seven and I have four outputs. So now it's going to be seven, eight, nine, ten. Uh, and, um, and then I can control it. Uh, next question. This one comes from um, Morgan Price in Vancouver, British Columbia. It says, my Aperture lights have a USB-C DMX what do we connect to those, and how does that scale from small, from four to eight lights, to larger with USB? There you go, Tlaloc. Wow, I, this is new. This is new for me. I have no idea what you would do with USB-C to DMX. That doesn't quite make sense. I don't know if um, if it's actually sending uh, ArtNet or SACN across that USB from your computer I'm not sure. It, it it may be that it's proprietary. It's um, it's quite odd to me. Interesting. Yeah, we'll have to do some more research in that area. Uh, next question. Matt Parker in Sarasota, Florida asked, how does ArtNet relate to DMX? Go to Lala. 
So ArtNet is essentially an IP version of the packets, the frames that I was talking about on the on the on the wire, and um, and it it it's literally sending a pack packet with all those 512 um, addresses, and then right next to the address is a value uh, of of zero to one of two fifty five. And, um, and it, it really, it really opened up the world, uh, for, for us a lot, Artnet and SACN to be able to, um, you know, get away from these systems with hundreds of wires and trying to get, you know, it just, it just allows you to do it, a line it, to a gateway and a star out or, a, or a, 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 um, a daisy chain out. Is it theoretically get, it gets more, uh, stable, uh, over distance too, as well? Because it's purely digital, so oh, I mean, if sure. you're so if you're Absolutely. running to, from the back of the back of a venue to the front of the stage, you don't want to use analog cables. You want to use ArtNet to get to get to there. You know, go a thousand feet or five hundred yeah. feet or whatever, and then you only get a lot the more distance that way. Mile. Yeah, I mean, you you do you run into to distance limitations even on 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 yeah. network cable, as we all know, but like. You could have but it can go through a switch, right? It can go. Yeah, you can go through. You can go through a switch halfway there, or, and, or good, right? And that's the key. Um, there's another thing that was utilized for um, for a long time called an opto coupler, and it was essentially right. a. It was a. It was for DMX, and you would send. It was exactly what a switch does for for Ethernet. You'd send your 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 DMX into it, and it would isolate uh, via an opt- optical device. It would it would isolate those those signals repower them and then the the thing that that helps with because i will tell you the thing that is the kryptonite for dmx chips those ones those little square ones i was talking about before lightning (laughs) (laughs) and they don't like that they don't like that at all (laughs) there's a lot of things that don't like lightning but that there's what you're saying is they are specifically uh uh sensitive to it yeah exactly so um so 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 those help a lot but but i think um uh, I'm seeing more and more this, this idea of you go up into the into the catwalks and every every little section in the catwalks has its own gateway, and you can decide, you know, your your universe schema. Like in this particular theater, um, you have all the all the north south bays are on on universe on one universe, and then. And then each line of those is on a separate universe, and so that schema is utilized for the whole place, and and the electricians know know it, and and the data is easy to track. Now, there's there's different ones. There's you know Chevet has their own. That's probably the least expensive gateway. There's there's Entech. There's DMX King. Are there any significant differences between those gateways? Yeah, I mean, it it's it can sort of creep into the cry cry once buy once if you buy once cry once if you um. If you buy one that's really inexpensive, what starts to happen is that the timing uh, starts to be weird, and so you have to then turn down the ti- the timing on your console to that particular yeah. gateway because it's too fast, and and you'll see flickers or you'll see you know odd things happening. So you gotta you have to tune that a little bit. Do you, do you have a favorite? Um, I really, uh, I really love a system with a bunch of. ETC gateways, okay. because the ETC gateways, you can just, um, you go outside of the, the lighting console and there's this thing called concert and you can just see every one of your gateways in, in a big grid and you can change the universe and say, okay, I ran out of universe, I ran out of channels here. So I'm going to, and 
each one of those can output a different universe on two on their two outputs. Um, and so they're super powerful. And and they're they're much more expensive than the other ones. So that, that gets back yes. to the buy one, cry once. They're yeah. like three times as much as the Entex, which are twice as much as the as the Chauvets, but but you get what you pay for. So if you if you if you have a show that you really want it to work, I mean, fiddling in my house, I think I have a couple DMX Kings and in uh Entech and that's probably fine. But but yeah, when it has to work, when failure is more expensive than the box, that's when you know, exactly. that's the thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, next question. Next question comes from Joe Phillips in Murphy, North Carolina. He says, how many DMX 8-bit commands per second are transmitted? And is that fixed or is it variable? I oh, I would, I'm, I, I would tell you, I would tell you, but I'd be lying the actual number. But uh, I know it is variable. You have like f- um, slow, fast, and extra fast. And, um, and it, it's, it has to be fast enough to not be noticeable when you're doing, um, like, think about it this way. You want an entire range of 700 lights to turn off at the same time. So you, you can, you have, it has to be fast enough that there's not a m- noticeable delay to the eye from the actual, from the actuation. And, and also think about it this other way. <clears throat> so in opera, we, do a lot of really, really, really slow fades. And this is where 8-bit dimming becomes a huge problem because you're moving from um, from 255 to 256 in the course of a minute. I mean, that's a little extreme, but <laughs> you're going to see that hit. It's going to go... Right? And so one of the... Because they didn't, they didn't update how DMX works, they they did sort of fake 16-bit dimming, um, which is essentially giving a second channel to those dimmers. And there's 255 steps between um, each one of the first ones. And so the, the, the computer is, the, the console is essentially doing that, that ramp between each one of those other fades. And um, I can tell you that it is one of my huge, huge pet peeves is having is having an eight bit unit and trying to do a, a big long fade and seeing it going. Is there? Do we see sixteen bit in the future anywhere, or do we have to move away from? I hope so. Analog, right? We'd have to move to all Ethernet at that point. You could do. I mean, once you went Ethernet to the lights, you could theoretically do even higher bit. You know, bits. I mean, it's like float. If you if you added float to it, it would help a lot, but yeah. it's just not that way so um but um uh and so and so for example and the other the other side of that that i that i would be remiss not to talk about is that the for example some psych lights that i really like the version one of them had 16 bit option and the version two didn't and i was like starts i started yelling and screaming about it but what i realized is what they did is they smoothed the steps in the fixture for those eight bits. So it, it becomes less necessary right. to have that, you know, they, they just do it in, in software ish in hardware in software on the hardware. Right. And the, uh, the problem with that is, is it, it relinquishes control from me, which I'm, you know, lighting designers are control freaks, but, um, <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so I, but I have to say, I, I have both version ones and versions twos in my current show and, yeah, they're they're pretty good. 
So. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. From Dave Kaufman in Vancouver, British Columbia. He says, as an experienced front of house audio guy and used audio switcher, whatever that means, I was pretty surprised at how bad the UX or user interface, I guess, for lighting consoles is. Who is the ATEM of DMX lighting consoles? Go ahead, Swalik. Well, Dave, I, I, I would have to disagree with you. <laughs> because here's the thing. If I sit in front of a, a sound console and I look at that UX, I have the same reaction. So it's just a matter of what you're used to. It's like, it's like I, and, 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 and I get a lot of questions about whether to use grand MA uh, consoles or hog consoles or ETC consoles, but it has to do with um, having learned in a very vertical way, how these systems work. And when those things change, we get really mad. <laughs> So, um, and so, and I think that's the, that's the key is, is that when you're looking at that, you're looking at it in relation to the sound console and, and, um, and so it, it, it's not, it's not quite right now. On the other hand, there are some pretty bad ones. Um, and so for me, um, yeah, I don't. I, I can't even say this because I, I don't want to say like they're better ones than others because there's a there's a seven designers or twenty designers that come knocking on my door saying I love that that console. So it's just it's just how it works. <laughs> and there's a lot of uh, you know for simple stuff there's or even medium stuff there's a lot of iPad apps and Mac apps and you know you don't have to have a console either, right? I mean you have Luminaire is a is one I've seen other people use that just kind of they're not going to have the same level that you're going to see with. Uh, something like an ETC, but if you have a simple lighting control, if you're looking for an ATEM, I guess, you know, ATEM version, I guess, ATEM mini version. Um, and then I guess the thing that I've seen the most is little Chauvet ones for like, oh, I want something just sitting around that I can move some sliders up and down and yeah. make the lights go. So there's, I mean, there are definitely smaller versions of it that doesn't have to be the full console. Yeah, I think that's important to, to point out is that a lot of people, and particularly in the film and television industry, just like having a slider, like having a physical thing in their hand that they can slide up and down. Yeah. And and there are a bunch of uh, consoles, small and expensive consoles that allow you to to do that, um, that don't even have a UI, that they essentially just slide up and down and, and you have, if you have 24 sliders, you have 24 DMX addresses um, and one universe. Uh, then you start to get into those same kind of slider panels that also have a patch, the ability to patch. Yeah. And they still don't have much of a UI. It's just like an LCD readout. <laughs> Drives me yeah. nuts. Like, how do you get in there and figure out what's what? You can't look at it. You know, it's it's really, it's tricky. Yeah, go ahead, so. Courtney. Do people make interfaces that can, that let you use like a MIDI control surface for mixing? with DMX that'll translate this, the sliders that are normally used for mixing sound levels into light levels? Yes. There's MIDI, um, there's MIDI, in, there's definitely MIDI interfaces between like the ETC consoles and I think the Grand MA consoles as well. Where we tend to work and um, is in MIDI show control and in MIDI time code when it comes to those things because uh, you can have two different kinds of things, like a sound console and a lighting console. We, we often do a, a situation where the stage manager will only call lighting cues, but a MIDI show control will, will fire the next, um, the next 
sort of mic setup on the on the console. It will, will fire cues inside the sound console, um, and so it, it 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 sort of pulls every it can pull everything together in a good way, and it can allow it can allow sound mixers to get out in front of what I like to call out in front of the airplane, so they don't have to think about what what to mute and unmute with a 25 person show um, with all, all their own wireless mics and they can just mix the show and listen to it. And they don't have to think about what's coming and how, how it's cued. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael. He says, do any fixtures use the RDM standard these days to report their health back to the console? Yep. Yeah, that's, that's what RDM is, is primarily for. It'll tell you whether or not there's a problem or there's some, there's some error or the set, the light needs to be reset. So yeah, absolutely. Next question. Mike Beardmore in uh, Bedford, UK says, uh, is it thing, is it a thing to translate between MIDI and DMX for AV and does it, uh, does the timing sync correctly? Yeah. So again, this is what we were just sort of talking about. Yeah, it, it does. It does time up uh, well. It's not that it's not that you're directly translating it. It's that you're taking. Um, you're. It's abstracted, right? You might connect. You you might connect a MIDI a MIDI channel to a channel in the lighting console and turn that up and down. So it doesn't mean that you're trying to take those frames and line them up. It means that you're just doing it by control. It's sort of like OSC, and and these consoles all all take OSC uh, as well, and 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 so you're you're moving up proverbial up and down proverbial sliders rather than trying to match up the DMX frames. Yeah, and and there's a there's an app called on there's an app for that called MIDI uh, MIDI Artnet, um, which is designed to to kind of go that direction. So the, the you know some of those things can be can be figured out there. It looks like just a mapping software. Next mm-hmm. question. Can't hear you, Courtney. Sorry. Uh, from uh, Brian Austerhout in Modesto, California, he says, how do you route DMX signals into visualization software like Unreal? Go talk. So you're going to take it into the computer where Unreal is. Um, and and so you're asking, you're essentially got to make sure that the that the subnet that you're working in is the same coming out of the lighting console and it's going to send artnet or sacn right to that software and the module that you use in unreal is going to is going to be able to read that artnet and you can you'll have to then patch every one of your fixtures in there just like you would in real life um so let's say i dropped in a Roby 600 into Unreal, I would have to give it a starting address in a universe. And then I would then go into the into the console and patch. And now I actually I'm going to share my screen again and show what patching is like. Um, and and uh, and that way it might be a little bit more clear. So <clears throat> if I go over here to patch, you see there's a list of channels, one through ten in this case. And um <clears throat> And then there's an address, and the address is going to be the starting address to the, uh, and it'll it, it'll list it'll list um, the starting address to the ending address of that fixture. So if I if I say I want to patch four at address, uh, let's say seventy five, it's going to make it a dimmer, and so there's going to be only one 
um, there's going to be only one address there. But if but I can go over here and and make this into, for example, uh, an LED um, RGB unit, and I'm going to make it 16 bits. So now you can see it added that extra that that ending address as well. And so you have to go to the unit and say, I want this starting address to be 75, and then it'll on that on that universe it's going to go. Uh, 75 to 84 but now let me let let's assume that this is not on on universe one so now i can say well four should be at address five slash 75 and so now i've just moved that to universe five next question Sorry, my mouse is misbehaving today. James Haldane in Vancouver, British Columbia says, is it possible to use a multimeter to determine whether our three-pin cables are XLR or DMX? We have some cables, but we're uncertain about their specific type. Yeah. Okay. James, go ahead and um, go ahead and, and ping me on Discord. I, I, I need to go look up the actual impedance levels so you can check the... Check the, yeah, um, I think that they're significantly different. So I think that the, um, if I'm correct, the the XLR I think is at seventy, and the and the X and the DMX is either one ten or one twenty. Yeah, so that sounds right to me. So it's like if it's you know, so I think that those are the the numbers you want to look for there. Go ahead, John. You can't do it with a just a multimeter. You have to have some sort of way to generate AC and measure. You could do it with the scope, or there's handheld uh, TDRs that will do do check the impedance. Next question. Next one comes in from Mike Beardmore in uh, Belford, uh, excuse me, uh, Bedford, UK. It says, how does the life cycle of theater hardware compare with the computing tech ones? Less than five years support? Go ahead, Paul. <laughs> 20, 30. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they last a long time. <laughs> and, and the reason for that is money, right? I mean, what happens is um, that a lot of these theaters rely on donations and grants. And so there's this big activity. You want to make it do a big, a, a, a big refit and donators and grant grant givers. They want to, they forget about how things have to actually be maintained and upkept. And so they want to do it once and have it be fine forever. And that's actually why these, these life cycles are, are like this. Um, uh, in the '90s, there was a bunch of money w moving around in, in in theatrical world, and um, so a lot of these theaters you walk into were up were upgraded in '95. <laughs> and so. I gotta say, it's uh, when you go into a theater that has been built in the last two or three years, it's just amazing. Like if they knew what they were yeah. doing, if they if they actually brought experts in, and the the big thing is they didn't bring the the mistake that a lot of theaters that we've gone into or or studios that we've gone into is they go to integrators and they ask them to build this all out for them and everything else, but they don't talk to people who are actually going to use it. <laughs> so and so uh, when you bring in specialists and, and some integrators have great specialists that do this all the time that do production and then they really know what they're talking about. So you just want to go to an integrator that's actually executing against the, what they build. But they, but in a studio or a theater where you actually talk to lighting designers and you actually talk to the audio engineers and you actually talk and you, you have these roundtables, there's a handful of theaters and there's one in Dumbo that is just unbelievable. And it's just like everything is all built exactly the way you'd want it, exactly where you need it. 
Um, and uh, it, it is amazing, but most of them are not that way. Most <laughs> of them are like, how are we going to interface into this thing? Because this, yeah. this hasn't been used for the last 15 years. So, um, yeah. That, but, uh, but on the other hand, I will say that, you know, the technicians of the, in the theatrical world, and I would, I would say also in, studio, in the studio world, um, it, we, know what we're, we know how to, how to deal with, with this situation. And so it's not actually like, right. how, how, how do we do it? It's like, oh yeah, we, we have 17 boxes of things that allow us to do that as people come in. Yeah. You know, it's like, it really is, I, I just got to give a shout out to the technicians of this, of this industry. Cause I mean, the, the thing that amazing. The, the biggest thing that I've seen that has changed a lot is fiber, you know, is just that we see so much glass getting put into a lot of the newer theaters that is just like, we will be. And when you talk to them, they're like, well, when we run attack 12 everywhere, or we run sometimes <laughs> more than that, like some of them are talking about higher numbers of, of glass. And I'm like, are you terminating all of those? No, no, we're just using one right now. But we had the run is hard. <laughs> you know, the run yeah. is, is really hard. And we decided that was it was much cheaper to run 12 strands when we need one or 96 strands when we need 20 or, or something like that. And, and it's just we just run these cables through all this stuff. And it's just we know that and they're and now they're thinking in 20 years 30 years like we know that this glass unless it's severed is going to be you know just going to keep on letting us add features and it's it's hard sometimes to get people to think that way but it's oftentimes a one percent change in cost to you know and say and you know gives you forward you know forward thinking process for a long time uh next question comes in from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. He says, uh, discuss the sound switch control one professional DMX DJ lighting controller with three months sound switch software access and DMX lights and Philips Hue support. How does it rate among <laughs> DMX controllers? No, it's Lolly. Did you get all that? Lolly. Well, um, that, that there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack in this question. The DM there, there's a lot of DMX, uh, Sorry, there's a lot of DJ equipment in the world that that um, is is great for that kind of work. If you're trying to f do things that you know kind of move in a lot of ways with the music, and it's not super super fine tune kind of work, it's totally fine, and 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 you can you can do it. The thing you want to be incredibly careful about is using a DJ light to light your light your studio situation to light your important zoom meeting to light you know it those are the kinds of things that it they don't care about they don't care about color rendering on your skin they don't care about um uh making things super soft and and really really high end for your camera that's just not how they're thinking they're thinking about putting it into a club and turning the changing the colors of the lights and moving them around with the with the music which is exactly what that particular thing needs and so i i i don't i can't say i've used the sound switch control one um but that is that is the intent of that work of that kind of um controller is to be able to do the work that you do in a club and that's that's a really important thing and I, i'm I often asked about etc versus hog versus grand ma versus dj controllers this has to do with what work you're doing with it. If you're trying to do opera with a grand MA, it is really frustrating because it's not thought of as a Q-Stack kind of console. I mean, you can do Q-Stack console work, but it's just a little bit more of a lift. 
same thing goes with ETC. If you're trying to take ETC and busk with it, they're com- they've come a long way because they bought Hog, but um, but it's just not built to build buttons that you can busk with and play the lights like a piano, right? It's not a cue stack. Right. It's literally like I'm turning this on now. I'm turning that on now. I'm turning that on now. It's like you have to be a a, a player of an instrument to 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 make that thing happen. So, um, and they're they're coming together. These things, these these higher end things, are coming together. But what you want to look at is what does these what do these controllers have, and what do you need to do when it comes to the um, Philips Hue support? I don't know if those use DMX, but I bet you that that if you go to GitHub, somebody's made a translator for them so that they can be controlled by your console because that's the kind of thing we do. <laughs> Beyond busking and theater work, is there a like a track based? Like I, I want to, like I know I have a song and I want all the stuff to go. Is there anything you can just lay lay down tracks of? Like I want these behaviors to happen during this time. Uh, yeah. So Q Lab might work pretty well for that because um, you could. There's a there's a lighting component of Q Lab, um, but also in the ETC world and in all of these other consoles, you can do um, time code. Uh, right. and so if you generate time code from where your track is, mm-hmm. and then you put, um, you, you put the firing on, on that time code moment, it is really powerful because here's the problem. If you're, if you're doing a Q stack that wants to happen the same time, every time on, uh, on a particular song, and then you make a, you change your mind and you, and you've, you've done it with auto follows and then you make you change your mind on the first one. You have to change your mind on all of them. So by pulling it in on a time code, you just say, "Okay, I'm going to move that time code a little bit." and It doesn't affect anything else. Right. Right. Uh, last question. Yeah. Oh, Paul. By the way, disco's dead. Pack up your mirror ball and go. <laughs> uh, Douglas Carmichael <laughs> asks, "What is the difference between the three DMX modes?" Gosh, I'm not 100% sure if Douglas is referring to the straight DMX versus ArtNet versus SACN, or if he's talking about the different modes that, that different fixtures utilize, or if he's talking about speed. So there's a, lot, there's a lot of different things that modes that this could refer to. The difference between DMX, ArtNet, and SACN, DMX is directly uh, plugged in via, via a single piece of copper, from your gateway or your lighting console to your light, um, Artnet is is over IP, and um, it is uh, it is utilizing a particular port and a particular p- packet size and protocol. And then SACN is doing exactly the same thing, but it has a different port and a slightly different packet size and protocol. Paul, but they're they're the same thing. Thank you so much for for coming and sharing what you know about uh, about this. It's amazing. Like it's just. I think as we keep on having these conversations about the lighting and and, and keep on putting these together, I'm I'm it's all starting to fit fit into pieces in my head, um, and hopefully we'll maybe maybe drag you into a couple labs here and there, maybe to play with some uh, some tools. That'd be that'd be a lot of fun. I'd love that. Okay, sometime soon. All right, thank you so much. Thanks to the panel for all the great work uh, and just the great answers, great conversation that we've had uh, in the first and second hour. I oh, can't do this without you. And uh, thanks to the, the the producers for all the great questions. Keeps us running through the first hour, keeps us running through the second hour. You know, it really is an interesting thing that that we generate this every day from scratch without with very little 
<laughs> with very little uh, stuff to hang on to. So we really depend on the producers to think of a couple questions about our second hour and think about a couple general questions in the first hour. And uh, and we depend on our panelists to be here and, to, and be ready to answer those questions. So we really appreciate everybody's contribution to that. And um, and uh, we just, you know, it's we just keep going. <laughs> and so it's really, really great work. Thank you to the incredible team on the back end that makes this happen every single day that plans these second hours. I feel like the second hour, this is a great week. We had a great week of second hours. And I think that the weeks are getting better and better because we have councils and we have Josh and Roy and we have, you know, uh, you know, all, you know, kind of managing all this stuff and putting those things together. And so, uh, you know, it's going to keep on getting better and better and better. And it also, we have this great dev team that keeps on making all this stuff run more smoothly. Um, and, uh, and then just the, the production team that here's here every day, cutting between all these things, making sure that the questions move around correctly and everything. There's a small village that makes this all possible. And we really appreciate your contribution. Uh, 81,000 miles that we traveled today, 131,000 kilometers, and that's 645 million. I always forget to say billion, million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into after hours. I still want to get my lights out, but I don't have time today. I don't have time to like, get them out, make them go different places. Soon. Soon. I got to get that DJ. I mean, that. Uh karaoke system set up right now I, I don't do karaoke we just do lip sync no lip sync okay <laughs> so we just, i've got the i got the smoke machine i got the i got the lights and i i can make the lights do different things and i do all that but what i need to do is get behaviors and then time the behaviors to the specific songs so that the kids submit the songs and then i build the lighting pattern time for code. what <laughs> time code exactly exactly <laughs> so Thanks. soon Disco's dead, Alex. <laughs> it's not disco. It's just a stage lighting for, for lip sync. It's not disco. There's no disco ball. There's, but there are lasers. I got lasers.